Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to Benjamin Stevenson about his book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Welcome, Benjamin. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Trust me, I am not going on vacation with these people. It's not going to happen. Set us up on... It's quite the terrible family reunion. (laughs) Set us up on how it comes to pass. Yeah, sure. So Ernest Cunningham is part of the Cunningham family and he's been invited to a reunion at a snow resort. And once he gets there, all of his family members have all these different frictions. In particular, they don't like him very much. He's done some um, things that they consider sort of double crossing their families on a code in the past. So they gather at this mountain retreat and then a snowstorm starts to come in. And that's when they find the first body. And Ernest realizes that he might be trapped on a mountain with a serial killer who's starting to pick off his family one by one. But the thing about Cunninghams is that they've all actually killed somebody. So the question Ernest faces is, in a family of killers, how does he find which one is the murderer? <laughs> that was something that was so delicious. It's it's each person gets a chapter or chapters. And that's so we get to know each of the characters one by one. We see them as a family dynamic at the beginning of the book. And then we see how each of them is their own onion layer. And yeah, absolutely. I was, I mean, the title is true. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to be like, if I'm going to write a book with this title, it's got to be true. It can't be one of those stories where all of the promise is in the pitch and it doesn't follow through. So right from the start, I was going to have one chapter per family family member and a death that correlated with that chapter. And so in terms of structuring it, that was really important to me that to get that structure through. So each of them have their moment to shine. And as you say, this community of people and then how it sort of changes how they relate to each other, depending on which chapter you're in, I think sort of changes how you read the book. I agree. And, and you, it's unique in the fact that you've created a book that I feel like even though everyone has killed someone, you don't hate them for it, which I think is a, it's sort of like a a line drawn in the sand. It's not always easy to tell a story about someone killing someone, whether it's accidental or on purpose, and then you not hating that character. So I think that you've given them certainly humanity, each of your characters. And that was a fun thing for me as a reader. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, when you when when I looked at the plot of this book, you know, there's 14 murders, there's 14 deaths, sorry, not murders. And, you know, they can't all be the same. They've got to be mm. they've got to be varieties um, and and differentiated from the other ones. And it's very deliberately called everyone in my family has killed someone. Not everyone in my family has murdered someone. So I wanted to really look into what is killing, you know, what what do different people interpret um, in different ways? And so I think that gives a lot of freshness to a lot of the different family member chapters. And then there's all of the murders, which are good fun as well in the murder mystery. It was so fun at the beginning of the book, you do uh, the 1930s detective code. Uh, tell us, tell the readers about what that is. I had read it before, but it's been a while. 
Yeah, so I I discovered that sort of Agatha Christie and some of her contemporaries, Ronald Knox, G.K. Chesterton, had like a club. Um, I say secret society, I think, in the book, but secret is, is possibly a stretch. But um, they had a club called the Detection Club where they got together and talked about murder mysteries and how they each wrote their murder mysteries and just, just basically hung out. And Ronald Knox, part of this group, he decided to write down 10 rules that dictated the rules of detective fiction. He calls them his Decalogue or his Ten Commandments of Detective Fiction. And they're, they're basically, they're very intuitive. Um, once you read them, you think, oh, of course, those are the rules of detective fiction. But they break down how a golden age mystery, which is the 1920s, 1930s, how a golden age mystery is constructed. And it's all of the type of stuff like, you know, um, that the the Watson, he, call, he refers to the Watson, which is the, the sidekick, must detail all the clues to the reader. Um, that the the detective cannot be the killer. Um, all of these things that they're often broken, but just in their little package, they speak to the message of playing fair, which I think was the whole thing about the golden age. Is that it's got to be in front of you. You want to have sort of an oh yeah moment when you read the discovery, not a sort of what the hell. Um, and they're all about playing fair. So you know, no crazy science, no identical twins, unless you put them in, um, <laughs> only one secret passage may be used. And so I found these rules and I just thought that's absolutely brilliant. And I was really, I was already sort of plotting out a classic mystery because I wanted to to write something more, more classical and a little bit more old fashioned because I thought it would be really fun to sort of play with that. And I found these rules and I thought, well, what if my main character knows these rules and then he finds himself in a murder mystery? And so he sticks to them throughout as the book goes on. And that was that was so much fun. And I to use a word you use, it is brilliant because it does something different for the reader, especially if you're, I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan, but if you like reading that golden age of mystery, they do follow rules. And so does everyone in my family has killed someone. And that was a very unique thing because we have all different kinds of genres, but you've chosen to certainly honor because in this book, there are deaths that I see similarities with other, like Agatha Christie, there are a few things I could check sort of off the box. And I loved it because it was it was not a retelling. It was simply an homage to something that has happened before. And I loved that. Yeah, I've put, I've, you know, I've scattered homages all through the book. Um, one of my particular favorites, which is sort of just for me when I was doing it, is that every door in the book, Ernest sort of mentions if there's a lock on it or not, which is sort of just him talking about locked room mysteries. He never says it outright, but every time he shuts or opens the door, he talks about locking it, uh, or there's a chain with a padlock or a lock. Um, and of course, you know, there, there's, there's, um, there's sort of modern reinventions. I mean, the serial killer's motive, uh, not motivation, the serial killer's method is not from an Agatha Christie novel. It's, it's, it's not from any novel, but it's sort of inspired by the locker room mystery where um, people sort of get gassed. It's a classic one. I'm just, um, I'm just struggling for the name at the moment, but yeah, the door is locked and they get gassed mm -hmm. in this, in this classic golden age uh, novel. And this is the modern version of it because it's, it's suffocation by ancient Persian torture technique, <laughs> which is completely unique to the book, but is, is sprinkled with that homage of, of the locked room. 
and, and that was so fun to read. And it, the snowstorm coming in, it reminded me, of course, of and then there were none. So they're sort of trapped, you know. And of course, it's not it's not only Christy and you. There, it's been a lot. It's been done several times. But there is that part of being trapped in a in a mystery novel that gives the reader. It, it makes us sit on the edge of our seat and it makes us interested in, in finding out what's coming next and what will happen. And you did that so deliciously and fun. And then, of course, we're still stuck with the family, which <laughs> has its own unique sort of mystery to itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then they went on, um, obviously, was something I was hoping to play with and, and the trapped um element is so good in so many thrillers and then it's about what characters you put in that situation and what they can do to each other um and thus the family reunion i thought what is the worst group of people you could put in this sort of trap scenario um and you know as i said ernest is he's fully aware that he's in a murder mystery novel and he sort of he thinks about things like his mobile phone battery because he's like, well, obviously that's going to run out and obviously we don't have any reception um, because those sort of elements, while while cliche, are required to set up. If he has a phone, he'll just Google everything and then he solve the crime immediately. So you've got to, this is the eternal, and I love this scene in whenever I watch horror films, I really enjoy the moment when the script writer has to come up with a reason to get rid of everyone's mobile phones. And it's just hilarious. You just see it sort of halfway in and somebody just goes, oh, no, I didn't charge my phone last night. <laughs> it's, they're in the middle of running from a killer and it's like some executive producer has said, could we put a line in because people are going to think, where's the bloody phones? And so I was just doing that every time. I was trying to speak to the reader and be like, you know what the setup is. You've read it. You've read it hundreds of times from Christie to, you know, the amazing Lucy Foley books and stuff. Sure. You know, we've all we've all got that. We all know what the deal is when we pick up a book like this. Um, but for me to sort of say directly back, not only do I know what the deal is, but I'm telling you I know what the deal is. And here we go, um, is is really fun to do with the reader. It was an earnest or earn. He has that voice. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, you, the author and Ernest tells us that he will never lie to us, which is really amazing. And, you know, it's, to me, it's amazing because it also gives me a friendship with Ernest because Ernest has said to me directly, I'm going to tell you this story and I'm going to tell you all of it, but I'm not going to lie to you and I'm not going to fool you. And that's for me, that was a lot of fun because I was sort of in on it on page one. And then, of course, I do want to see what all the rest of the pages are like as well, because you've already promised me you won't lie to me. So I'm in it now. <laughs> and I think yeah, well, he I'm sorry. I think it's important, too, because I will share this. I've shared it once before. I read a book that was wildly, hugely popular here in the U.S. Uh, last year, year before last. And the author lies to me. And I don't find it out until the end of the book. And it was so wildly popular, except at my house, where I will never read it again because I was so angry. So it's it's a fun thing for Ernest to say, hey, I got a story for you and I'm going to tell you the truth. And that made me want to root for him and maybe even the family, even all the more. Oh, wow. That's first of all, you have to tell me what that book is off recording. Because <laughs> I will I really have to tell you. And look, psychological thrillers, um, which are more of the sort of unreliable type. There's so many brilliant ones, right? There's so many ones yeah. that have executed that twist so well, you know, since sort of 
Gone Girl basically revolutionised the Unreliable Narrator. I say revolutionised, Agatha Christie did it. You know, she yes. broke those rules as well. She broke Knox's rules. Um, some say that Knox wrote the rules deliberately to sort of needle her at the fact that she wasn't following them sometimes, which is part of her brilliance. Um, but, yeah, things like Gone Girl, you know, executed, executed amazingly. Um, but I think that I was just a bit tired of the psychological thrillers that 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 relied on something that you didn't know as the reader which is you know there's there's an amount of shock and awe in the reveal when they're done really well but when it doesn't quite stick it i think you start feeling a little bit cheated and there's no specific novel here because as i say there are lots of lots of brilliant ones but i just had felt the feeling a little bit on those unreliable narrators that well sometimes you do have to sort of as you say cheat you have to lie to the reader a little bit you know, Annie Wilkes would throw a fit if she if she sort of encountered this kind of um, narrative. And so I just wanted to sort of twist the unreliable narrator and Ernest says himself, I am a reliable narrator. I know this is rare in modern fiction, but I will be reliable. And he doesn't lie. Um, he does fool you because he's yes. very, he's honest to a fault in which his, his own definition of honesty is, is often technical and also he can only tell you what he sees and what he knows and what he thinks um but everything is on the page for the reader which is something that i really wanted to do because i just wanted that moment when it's all revealed um i think that 10 percent of your readers should figure it out that's sort of my 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 philosophy is some people should be able to piece it together if you've got everything on the page and it is fair if nobody can piece together your twist, sure, it's a big twist, but I don't really think it counts as a twist. And that's sort of the books that people sort of get to that, turn that page, see the reveal and sort of hurl it across the room and go, oh, come on, <laughs> which is fun in itself. But uh, it's just that is exactly what I was sort of rebelling against with this creation of Ernest and his his reliability and his truth telling. Um, and I was just interested in, you know, what type of... Um, the Hitchcockian sort of definition of suspense, right, is that that classic anecdote where he says that if you have two people sitting at a table and a bomb goes off underneath the table, it's a surprise, but it's not suspense. If you have two people sitting at a table and you show the bomb under the table while they're talking, then it's suspense because you, you, you're waiting for it to go off. And so Ernest is very much showing you what is there. It, it's an exercise in building suspense in a different way, not because you don't know what's going to happen, but because you don't know how it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. You know exactly when it's going to happen because Ernest tells you the page numbers that every death in the book <laughs> is going to occur. But it's, it is an exploration in, in suspense using those different elements that we normally don't have. Well, that's right. And because each person got a chapter or chapters, so each we had we, the reader, have to invest and we have to wait that person's turn because while there are places that Ernest gives us wonderful hints without hitting us over the head, or a character says just one simple thing, and you find, you know, four chapters or 10 chapters later, that now you understand what that character was thinking. Um, there's a point in there where one of the women doesn't quite, Lucy doesn't quite understand what she knows. It takes mm-hmm. her a minute for it to process. And that's that's a beautiful thing because... She, they are her character peels the onion layer, just as we, the reader, sees her peeling it. And that's a good thing. At least it's an enjoyable thing. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah. Well, and the structure is, you know, the structure's all part of that, um, that sort of Hitchcockian suspense thing, because as each character gets their chapter, the reader is aware that I'm whittling down the cast list. I'm not yes. ruling out their motives or their suspicion for being the murderer, but I'm sort of leaving the people who haven't been featured yet on the table. So as you're reading it, you're very aware of the structure. And then as the book sort of gets sort of three quarters of the way through, the structure starts, it starts playing back. You know, people get second chapters, which maybe you weren't expecting or, 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 you know, there's short chapters or there's chapter breaks and stuff as it moves between the characters. So I wanted to be very aware of how the book was read um, and to have the physical object of the book be a, an artifact of the suspense that I was trying to build. And so it's, it all sort of hopefully leads to that. And the, the chapter by chapter character um, featuring was, was definitely a real um, element of that. And and it makes it so interesting. And I will say my favorite chapter, and this is with humor, is chapter nine. Chapter so I'm nine. reading and I get to chapter nine and I turn the page and I'm like, wait, wait, well, wait, wait. So then I have to go back to chapter nine again. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I laughed out loud. I was like, oh, really, Benjamin? Really? That's the way you're going to play it? So, <laughs> but yeah, it, well, that's, yeah. I thought it was quite audacious. I was certain that would get edited out when I put it in by my editors and they let it fly. Yay! Um, and chapter 14.5 is my other favourite. I love <laughs> chapter 9 and chapter 14 and a half. Um, yeah. It's, it's just done so well. It really, really is. And I thought when I started this, I somehow mistakenly thought this was your debut and it's your third novel. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, it's um, it's sort of the book that so I live in Australia and I've been writing my novels here um, and I have been published uh, over in the US before. But this one um, has sort of, I guess, got got the most attention, um, sort of Good. being my breakout, I suppose. Um, so I think it's very much sort of my introduction for me as a writer to to you guys over there in the US, even though it's not technically my first novel. So yeah, that's how I'm seeing it. Well, I'm hoping this has lots of legs and runs far and wide because it is so delicious. Oh, Do you have, you. You're welcome. Do you have a social media or website you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I'm best on Instagram. So that's just at Stevenson Experience. Stevenson with a V. Perfect. Perfect. Once again, the book is Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming and hanging out and chatting with me about your book. Thanks for having me and thanks for calling the book delicious. I'm going to see it, if we can put that on the cover. <laughs> please. I, it really, really is. So, and are you, do you know if you're coming to America to tour at all yet? Uh, I don't have anything sort of planned. I think COVID changed a lot of what in-person stuff we do. Um, but I hope to at some point. I hope so too. Hang on for me just a minute. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at Dan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out with Dan. <laughs>